The Scream Kings are in no way responsible for any encounters with the paranormal, extraterrestrial abductions, eldritch insanity, hauntings, curses, hexes, demonic possessions, cryptozoological sightings, or any loss of sleep that may result from listening to this podcast. This is the Scream Kings Podcast. I'm Nathaniel Darkish. And this is Max George. And we have a very, very, very special guest on the podcast today. We would like to introduce Ben Rock to the episode. Hey, hey, thanks for having me. It's exciting to be on. Yeah, we are just thrilled and I'm fangirling over in Utah. I'm so excited. Thank you, Ben. Oh, yeah, it's my pleasure. Well, so I guess just to get things rolling, who who are you? Why, Why should our listeners care? Uh, that we have you on our show. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, hopefully they care. Uh, yeah, I uh, I uh, started out my career when I was still in film school. Actually, even going back earlier, I, I, I did. I started out as a special effects makeup artist in high That's school, awesome. and I was like way into you know Tom Savini and Dick Smith and Rick Baker and all that stuff. And uh, as you should be. Uh, yeah, and so and I I hooked up with a, a community theater in Orlando and met this woman named Amanda Llewellyn. And she, when I was in college, she started working for a guy named David Pryor. I don't know if you're familiar with David Pryor or his 30-some movies. Um, but uh, she brought me up to be her assistant. And she kind of trained me to be her assistant. And so I worked on a bunch of, I, this is in Orlando, Florida. And he was in Mobile, Alabama. And I worked on like six or seven David Pryor projects in Mobile. And I worked on, you know, a bunch of low-budget stuff in the Southeast. The most exciting thing maybe was... Uh, that I got to go to Thailand and work on Bloodsport 2, uh, again, as her assistant. And in about 1997, I, I had always, I was going to film school. I wanted to direct my own stuff and I, and I quit doing makeup. And that same year I was asked by a bunch of my film school buddies, if I would work on their crazy low budget project. And this story is much longer than I'm making it sound, but I've, I've told it several times before, but that, that film was the Blair Witch Project. And I, uh, I was brought on as the uh, production designer. Um, oh, that's amazing. And so it was actually about a year before that I uh, I started. They, the first thing they had me do was kind of flesh out a lot of the mythology. They had like a, a rough sketch of the mythology and they had me kind of, you know, codify it, name the names, set more dates, get really specific with it and kind of create the timeline of the overall mythology. And then uh, when they raised that sweet, whatever, $22,000, uh, we all went to... Uh, maryland and filmed it for a month and that was uh a lot of fun and uh yeah and then when that blew up it opened doors for me i I had moved to la so i moved to la in 1999 and uh literally the day i arrived in la was the was the day after it was bought blair Witch was bought at sundance by artisan entertainment and um and yeah my whole uh la adventure kind of got uh kicked off uh Maybe starting about six, eight months after that, when the movie came out, because up until then nobody gave a crap about it. But uh, but when it came out, it uh, you know it, it opened doors. I I uh, had, I wrote Curse of the Blair Witch, which was the um, Sci-Fi Channel special that preceded the movie coming out, and then Artisan wanted two more specials: one that promoted its uh, premiere on Showtime, and that was the first thing I was ever hired to direct, and it was called The Burkittsville Seven. And if you uh, want to watch it, I stuck it on my Vimeo because. Uh, 
I don't think it's on any of the DVDs or Blu-rays or any of that. So uh, you can find it on my Vimeo. Um, and uh, that is still to this day possibly the weirdest thing I've ever uh, gotten to do in this business. It's pretty out there. It's super weird. Well, what they wanted was they wanted a TV special that hyped the Blair Witch premiere on Showtime that did not go back over the Blair Witch mythology any more than it needed to or anything about the first movie, and they also didn't want to give away the second movie. So I came up with a super oddball pitch, and they went for it, and uh, that was that was lucky. And then I did another special that was for the uh, ill-fated sequel, and, uh, you know, um, you know, a, a bunch of other, you know, some other highlights. I, I did a, uh, a movie for Warner Brothers called uh, Alien Raiders. I hate the title. Never liked that title. That, that was stuck on it at the very end. But uh, the movie itself, I'm quite proud of. Uh, came together pretty well. Uh, and actually, Dan Myrick, who was the co-director on Blair Witch, he was the executive producer on that. He kind of gave me my, my first feature, and so far only feature. But... Um, yeah, and then uh, most, I mean, I've done a lot. Oh, uh, and uh, my friend Bob DeRosa, who I co-wrote uh, Video Palace with, he and I have a web series we've been doing for about the last four or five years called 20 Seconds to Live. That's kind of a horror comedy thing that you can uh, find pretty easily. Uh, all the episodes thus far are posted on uh, aeriescope.com, which is Adam Green's website. Um, but uh, we have a second season coming out, and we're, those are probably just going to be, we're probably going to move the whole show to our website at that time. Awesome. Yeah, that's crazy. Blair Witch, we've talked about it quite a bit on the podcast. We don't have a specific episode about it, but that movie is classic. Oh, thanks. terrified me the first time I saw it. And the fact that you actually helped with the mythology, I'm a big kind of mythology religion guru here. So that is... Oh, cool. That's amazing. I, I, and the Blair Witch it almost feels authentic. And the fact that that just you know came out of nowhere is really impressive. It, it's awesome. It, it, we literally all did come out of nowhere. So yeah, I mean, like we were all, we were all, <laughs> Ed was living in Maryland and the rest of us were living in Orlando, Florida in complete obscurity at the time. So, um, well, well, a lot of the best projects come out of that. So yeah, no, I mean, it, it was a lot of fun. It's funny because, uh, when I worked on that, like a year earlier, I had worked on a movie that David Pryor produced called the pack, the P period, a period, C period, K period. It was like one of the last things I did makeup on. And to me, they both are kind of the same, a very similar experience. Only the pack, you know, is it didn't turn out as as well. I don't want to say anything negative about it, but it's like you know, it's a sixty five thousand dollar monster run, runs amok in the woods movie, and uh, and uh, a guy, a really cool guy named Brian Todd, uh, uh, directed it. Um, and but both movies were like summer camp, like in both, like on both, we were like all crashing around someone's house. And, and like making a movie and, you know, just kind of living, living and breathing the movie we were making with everyone around us. And, you know, I, I kind of got, it was weird cause I'd worked on a few low, lower budget, but like, you know, like upper hundred thousands of dollars budget movies. And then I worked on those two and it was like, oh, you can actually have a lot of fun. Like it, it, it doesn't have to feel like all business all day long. And, um, you know, uh, and, and obviously Blair, Blair Rich, I, I think um, when Greg Hale first pit, who was the producer on it, when he first pitched me the basic idea, I fell for it hook, line, and sinker like everyone else did. And I sort of feel like the pitch of that movie just worked for it. It, it worked individually, and it ended, like what worked on me ended up working on a lot of other people. Like I feel like an early fan of it myself. What turned you on to horror specifically? Um, I have always been into horror. I mean, like, since I was a little kid. I mean, the first movie that ever, like, really, really scared the crap out of me 
was uh, Peter Medak's The Changeling with George C. Scott, which I saw on HBO, I think, when I was like nine years old, and it freaked me out, and my mother had to stay up all night with me and whatever. Oh, that's such a good movie. <laughs> Even like just like the ball bouncing down the staircase was just yeah. super creepy. Everything about I watched that movie recently on Shutter, and I mean, like obviously, you know, like you go like, oh, today you could do so much more with audio or whatever. But that movie really holds up quite well, and it's uh, it's it's some it's some great work. But you know, and then there was like in because I grew up in Orlando, out of Tampa, there was like one of those horror shows from a guy named you know like one of those horror host characters, and it was Doctor Paul Bearer, and. Uh, <laughs> They would show like a lot of like old William Castle kind of stuff. And I got like way into that stuff. But I feel like the movie that really hooked me when I was a teenager was uh, Fright Night, the original Fright Night. And I taped that off of uh, off of cable and I just watched it over and over and over and over again. Tom Holland's uh, movie. And um, it's probably somewhere between that and the thing. I, um, romantically, I'd like to say it was the thing because I had seen the thing and I had taped it. But I feel like the thing to me is like bigger than a horror movie, you know, mm-hmm. movies like the shining and the thing are like just, um, th- they transcend genre in, in a weird way. And, and to me, fright night is like a straight up, like, you know, Saturday night horror movie that, that I, I just loved. And I watched it a thousand times. And, uh, and even I was, uh, just a few years ago, super nerded out. Cause I got to work with Tom Holland for literally only a few hours, but he's in one episode of, of 20 seconds to live. And it was like the most exciting thing to me ever to like be able to communicate with him, you know. So you may have already answered that. Then would Fright Night be your favorite horror movie? No, I mean, I think I think I would have to say the thing. I mean, I guess that's it feels like 10 years ago I would talk about the thing and nobody knew what it was. And I feel like the thing has had a cultural renaissance and now everybody uh, is aware of it, um, which, which isn't me like saying like, hey, I was into the thing before it was cool. Um, but um <laughs> But so but review, ben. well, like when I was making Alien Raiders, Alien Raiders is very much an homage to the thing. Like as in as much as I was able to do for uh, you know basically no money, we had we had a pretty low budget. Um, but it, um, but I remember talking to our sound designer and saying like, "Have you ever seen the thing?" And he was a younger guy and he never heard of it. So I like I had it on DVD and I lent it to him. And uh, I don't I don't know that I don't know if that made any difference in his sound design. But um, you know, to me, like that movie is just. It's such a seminal, amazing, like there's just no, there's no other movie like it. So true. I, and, I adore the thing. And Kurt Russell in it is just fantastic. Yeah. And John Carpenter firing on all cylinders. I mean, John Carpenter's made some amazing films, but to me that combines everything he does well in one package. Yeah. It's, it's definitely the height of his powers. Yeah. Okay. So, we we talked about this a little bit before uh, the podcast, how it might be a little bit tricky to, to pin this down, but what would you say the scariest horror movie uh, you've seen is? God, I mean, because to me, it's like the way that I kind of think about <clears throat> what is scary is like what gets under my skin and what like kind of haunts me. And it's not super recent, but it's more recent than the thing. I, I guess, and it's, I don't, people wouldn't, would say it's not even a horror movie, but I feel like Pan's Labyrinth has some of the, Ugh. some of the scariest imagery that just like really at, at, at the time just really got way under my skin. I saw that movie, I think three times in the theater. I mean, there are it's... movies like, like The Witch recently, which I loved, but I, you know, when I say it scared me, it's not like, it's more just a creeping dread than a scare, but I love that movie. Mm-hmm. 
Well, and Pan's Labyrinth has such a great mix of the supernatural horror, but also the visceral real horror. Yeah. It just sticks with you for days after watching it. Pan's Labyrinth is one of my favorite movies, and I know it's one of Nathaniel's as well. We, we both love that thing. Yeah, I mean, I love Guillermo del Toro, but that's definitely, I, like, I wish, he would, I, I wish he would try and make that every time, but obviously, you know, <laughs> he's his own guy. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he has such a, a interesting range, but yeah, but when he goes that direction, uh, he hits that out of the park. I'm, I mean, I, I look forward to everything he does, and you know, I don't think that there's a single movie of his that I don't love. Um, I think that above all of his English language films, I would put Pan's Labyrinth and The Devil's Backbone both right up there, though. Agreed. That's fair. So, should we dive into talking a little bit about Video Palace, since that's here? Uh, yes. Do it up. I'd gotten an unmarked white videotape the week before, and I watched a few minutes. And it was like some kind of experimental video from the 70s, like, like Guy Sherwin on crack or something. All static and noise and barely discernible moving shapes. Sometimes you'd make out a dark form, but then the static would overtake the frame. I haven't thought about it since, but... Listen to this. Oh my goodness. So I gotta say, Ben, Nathaniel told me about Video Palace. I was traveling in Tennessee this last week. Um, He said, hey, there's this new podcast. You gotta check it out. And I was very excited. I was kind of going through a podcast drought. I listened to all 10 episodes in two days. Wow. Thank you. That's like three hours. It is brilliant. Oh, thank you. So brilliant. I also listened to it in two days. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Um, Let's just like like dive into it. So tell us a little bit uh, how you guys created the story. And and Nathaniel, maybe we should give a little teaser out to our listeners about what this is about. Or I guess maybe we're, we're the... Uh, less qualified people to, to talk about what what it's about. Do you want to give us a, a little snapshot, Ben? Uh, yeah, I mean, kind of the way that we've always talked about it is it's it's a first person investigative podcast, like a serial or in the dark kind of podcast, uh, in which our narrator, who we are crazy glued to for the duration, uh, goes to investigate something. It starts off seeming kind of interesting and benign, and ends up being. A uh, horrible uh, Lovecraftian style, uh, you know, cult conspiracy cover up. Like, like he kind of goes down a crazy rabbit hole into uh, in, into uh, Lovecraft uh, comes up a lot. So, it, oh it's yeah. A, sorry, that's not a good elevator pitch, but uh, it's it's, it's uh, later for me. So, but uh, video but, yeah. palace being this kind of central location that had a bunch of old VHSs. Um, yeah, Video Palace itself. I mean, like so much of it is is, is uh, stuck to you know nostalgia for older media, and uh, and it does all center around like a video store in Vermont uh, that burned down in the '90s. That was like this place that you could get literally anything, including these very mysterious white tapes. Yes, the white tapes, and we tried to create a. We have a whole mythos around around the white tapes that we only touch on in the podcast. But yeah, these white tapes, which uh, which cause our hero uh, Mark Cambria, played by Chase Williamson of John Dies at the End fame, um, that uh, make him speak in a in a language that doesn't really exist in his sleep, and uh, that kind of kicks off our mystery. Yeah. So if you haven't listened to it, just from that 
teaser, pause this, go listen to the whole show, uh, and then come back. I guarantee all our listeners will love it. I have a we have a kind of a groupie who works with me, and I I let her know about it, and she also finished it in a day. Oh wow! So it's catching fire. It's a fantastic podcast. I hope we get to do a second season. We'll uh, you better do a second season. <laughs> riot, <laughs> or at least tweet very angrily. Do it. <laughs> Give me a stern a stern tweet. Okay. Um, so one of my things that I really was drawn to with video palace was the voice acting in this in this podcast blew my mind it was incredible can you maybe give some insight on how you guys figured that out yeah yeah so uh i've uh i have a podcast that i've been doing for a while that's just an interview-based podcast like the one that we're doing right now uh where i interview cinematographers but i've never done like professional audio production like this and uh i'm a filmmaker first and foremost and i kind of approached it as a filmmaker so the conventional wisdom about like if you're going to record a narrative podcast would be um you know bring in each actor individually have them read all their lines and maybe as a director you stand off off you know in the booth and read you know the other lines that they have to lead in and then in editing you you cut them all together or if you have a scene between two actors you might have them both in like isolated booths doing scenes so you can slide their audio around and what I kind of said from the beginning was I didn't want to do that. I wanted to basically do everything like it was a live theater or like it was a film scene. So we were recording in a Foley studio in Burbank. Uh, so it's, you know, not, not the biggest room in, in the world. You know, it's, you know, probably like the size of the average living room. Um, uh, and we, we had uh, really expensive mics on their bodies and we had a really expensive boom mic. But we also gave them, uh, we gave uh, Chase a Zoom H4n, which is a device that you would probably use to record uh, an actual podcast with. And we would block the scene. So if, you, if they're walking, we'd have them walking in place. If they were seating, if they were in the first scene, they're in bed and we you know, put ferny pads down and pillows and they're literally laying down. We darkened the room and tried to create the mood as, you know, we didn't spend hours with this because we, we had to record very quickly. Um, but the scene work is just like scene work in live theater or film, where you just kind of go through it a few times and uh, and you have them physicalize as much as humanly possible. We had them do whatever physical task they were doing, uh, and we always thought like, where would he have put the microphone if he's you know interviewing a Amber in her in her uh, trailer? Where where is the microphone? Is he put it on the table? Is he holding it in his hand? If he's holding it in his hand, Chase would literally hold the thing and point it around. Um, and uh, I feel like that gave us a, a great sense of realism and it didn't slow us down. We were able to record really quickly. We recorded, you know, about three hours of stuff and we did it in about five days. So it was it was a really fast uh, process. And also for the interviews, I used a technique that we had. Uh, I, I don't know that I invented it. All I know is no one ever taught me how to do it. I kind of figured it out on my own uh, when we were doing the Blair Witch specials like Curse of the Blair Witch instead of like scripting an interview saying like, you know, so where did you go to blah, blah, blah. And then they say, uh, you know, I was 15 and I, you know, what? instead of giving them scripted answers, what I do is I write up a, a bio that's like maybe two pages long and it goes into interesting details or whatever. And then we encourage actors to um, elaborate as much as they feel like elaborating. And, uh, and so every interview is a real interview. So, you know, if it's scripted, I mean, most of them scripted wise are only maybe three pages at most, but 
which means you'd have about three minutes of material from them. But in our case, we'd end up having sometimes 30 minutes of material from people. Um, when we brought in Adam Green to play himself, you know, Adam, Adam had like, he went into a whole giant yarn and it, and it was fascinating. And I was like, God damn, Adam, we need to make you a co-host of this podcast now. But, um, and in <laughs> fact, in fact, his, his interview was so awesome. Uh, and this is all because Adam's awesome. Uh, I, I went to Shudder and said like, Hey, you know, some of the interviews of the real people are really fascinating. Could, could we do some bonus episodes? And they, they went for that. So we, you know, just cut longer versions of all the, all the interviews with the real people, him and Steve Barton, Sam Zimmerman, they were all great. Um, and, uh, and so they're like, it's a shutter only thing, but, um, but they, they released those bonus episodes and to me. That's that stuff. All the interviews were like that though. So any character who, you know, Jacob Manders or whoever, like Chase is literally in the same room with them interviewing them and they're just babbling. And, uh, what you get from that is sort of like, you have to cut, you have to chop it down to make it work. And I did a lot of the actual editing of the interviews. Um, and in the, in the act of chopping it, it's, it just ends up sounding like a real interview because that's what would have happened to a real interview. You know, you kind mm -hmm. of, you know, Frank and bite what people say and, uh, and, and stuff like that. And, you know, like, obviously we could say the actors say it just like this, but really, uh, Bob DeRosa, who co-wrote it with me, he and I were in the room just making sure that they got like the correct information out. And in the bios, especially when people are talking about, so like, a bunch of the characters talk about Video Palace, but I gave them all different information about Video Palace, sometimes mildly conflicting, because I feel like that's what would happen in real life. Like if, you know, all of us were describing Salt Lake City, uh, you know, I, I would, I, I've been there a couple of times and I would have conflicting descriptions from, from both of you. Mm -hmm. And that, that's just the normal, you know, way people are. So we kind of build that into the bios as we're, as we're writing those. So it's that. And also, honestly, we have an amazing casting director who I've been working with since 2003 named Leah Mangum. And she knows the kind of actors that I'm, that I'm looking for. And she's great at finding people who are, uh, who are good and, and uh, good at improv. And, and we encourage them, to, even though the, the whole thing is scripted, uh, we did encourage them to improv. And a lot of times, if it was like a, a scene with Mark and, and uh, Tamara, I would ask, you know, Chase and Devin, who played those two roles, I, I would say like, hey, you know, could you give me the 10 seconds before the scene starts? Could you just ad lib something? And knowing that like we might be fading the music up or something and you just want to hear them talking, sometimes they'd give us amazing, amazing stuff. Or uh, Anina Denovi, who plays Cat really has a degree in music. And so, so when we were talking about the tritone that, you know, the devil's tone and all that stuff, yeah. she knew a lot about that. And she elaborated, she went off of our script and went into more detail than we'd written. And Bob and I were in the room like, shit, we got to use that. <laughs> well, I need to hear that recording. <laughs> yeah. She, she was pretty amazing. Yeah. I mean, that, that was, I, I mean, I, I can talk, I can run my app about the, the way that we work with actors a lot because, you know, to me, like that's, at the center of this is like, you know, getting the script as good as we could, which had to happen very quickly. And then getting actors who, uh, who could be authentic. And we would tell people in the auditions and like literally Bob and our producer, Liam Finn and I and, and Liam Mangum were sitting in every audition, like literally every audition. And we would say to the actors, like, I don't care if you butcher the script, like we're looking for authenticity. And, uh, and we ended up getting actors who didn't butcher the script, but were great at being authentic. But in the audition, it was like, you know, we, we just wanted to know that they sounded like real people.
It's amazing how often that can be a, a problem with especially scripted podcasts. And yeah, I never felt like at any point it didn't feel natural. So you, you definitely nailed it oh, there. Well, and that level of authenticity makes me want to watch or listen to the, the show again, you know, because where I know that this is an actual interview, it kind of adds another level to it almost. It, that's fascinating. Yeah, it's, it's a fun technique. And, you know, again, like we used it on Curse of the Blair Witch and the Burkittsville 7 and Shadow of the Blair Witch. And I also did a TV special for the first um, Hellboy movie that Guillermo del Toro directed in 2004. Used the same exact <clears throat> technique every time. And I feel like you get pretty amazing results. And again, like I, I, I'm not saying I invented it, but I again, I don't know anyone else who's ever done it. So maybe there's another version of it. Someone does that's better, but it's it's what I know works. Well, you do a pretty damn good job as is. Oh, thanks. So... <laughs> So, so one thing I'm just kind of wanting to to know is is kind of like how you got involved in in the project because you know the it's not your name as as listed as like the creator of the show but you know you're the director and co writer so I kind of want to know yeah how how you got into this project especially since it was kind of a departure from you working on film. So Mike Manello uh, was the one who brought me on, and Mike was the co producer of the Blair Witch Project. And, um, and, you know, uh, I don't, Mike was sort of the person who was most directly responsible, I think, for putting the Blair Witch stuff on the internet in, in the early days. And, mm-hmm. and Mike just, he's like next level brilliant uh, marketing guy. And he has a, uh, an agency in New York called Campfire, where they do kind of experience-based advertising. Sometimes they use the web, sometimes they like... Last year at Comic-Con, they did a pop-up store for the Purge that was like Party City, but it was Purge. I think it was Purge City, you know, selling Purge products. Hmm. Like, Mike is just like, like, really one of the most brilliant people I've ever known. And um, and so he had met uh, with Owen Shiflett, who is the executive at Shudder. And he had, he had this idea, he and a guy named Nick Braccia, who also works at uh, Campfire with Mike. And uh, Owen had liked the idea, and so they'd kind of gone off and developed uh, a basic pitch and kind of like a five, six-page, maybe ten-page outline. So when Mike approached me to see if uh, I would be interested in doing it, that was pretty much what they had. And I I immediately saw, you know, like I I got what he was going for. And Mike and I had been talking for years, like maybe the last three or four years, about doing um, for fun doing like a fiction horror podcast or a fiction, maybe not horror, but like a, you know, dark, weird ass, like what we do kind of pot. Uh, uh, but as a podcast, we've been talking about, cause I'm obsessed with podcasts and I subscribe to a scandalous number of them. And, uh, and so does Mike. And uh, so we've been talking about it for a while. So he, so he brought the idea to me and it was the kind of thing where like he's full time at his agency. He would not have the time to develop it any further than he already had. And, uh, and the same with Nick, you know, those guys both work full time at that. And so, you know, they are, they're the two creators of it and they're the executive producers of it. And like every step of the way, we kind of showed them our math and kind of got their blessing before we moved on to the next thing, whatever it was. And so, you know, we took their outline and I looked at their outline after we finished it. And I was like, you know, without, without meaning to, we really stuck pretty close. I mean, there's, there were there were some significant changes that we had to make along the way, and I would say we also really worked hard to make Tamra a much bigger character. And you know what, wh- where it goes with Tamra was definitely uh, uh, that was that was our idea. But um, but 
we stuck really close to their to their outline and all the themes and stuff that they wanted to have in there. And then, uh, you know, just, <clears throat> you know, I brought Bob on, not, not just because Bob and I have worked together. We don't just, we haven't just worked together on 20 Seconds to Live. Bob and I do lots of like goofy ass late night theater and stuff in LA. And we've been, and we collaborate on all kinds of stuff. And we've developed a few films to try to get made. And it's, you know, brutal business and stuff doesn't get made. So, um, but um, I brought Bob on because he had uh, a lot of uh, TV experience as a writer. And I knew that we were going to need to kind of break it like television. We were going to need to go episode by episode and, you know, follow the arcs of every character. And I honestly didn't really know how to do that. If it was one thing, if it, you know, like if it was like Curse of the Blair Witch or something like that, if it was a format that I understood better, I, I would have maybe had more confidence. But I, I wanted to work with Bob on it. And, and you know, Bob and I have, uh, I think, uh, complementary skills as, as uh, creative people. Ordinarily, he does the writing and I do the directing, but in this case, we both you know did the writing, and it was literally sitting uh, in his home office with uh, cork boards and index cards, you know, writing writing out ideas for scenes and moving them around and shuffling them around until we felt like we had each episode. And then we ran all that by Mike and Nick, and then when we got their blessing, we took our cork boards literally to uh, Shutter and pitched uh, Owen and Nick Lazo, who's uh, you know the other main executive on it. And kind of ran them through every episode, you know, beat by beat, and pitched them the whole season. Then when we got the blessing, that was that was when the writing started. Yeah, I mean that was that was how I, I came to be involved in it. And you know, for any prospective season two stuff, again, like I, I I can't I can't break any news here about what's happening with that. But you know, the identical team is still working on on trying to get season two to happen. <laughs> we as a podcast are are praying for because i need to know what happens next oh it 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 gets much worse anyway we will be marketing the shit out of this episode or this season two if it comes to like grief something that i really loved is the story itself you know it kind of harkened back to that nostalgia for a lot of us millennials with the vhs and the clamshells and all of this um but also the story was incredibly original i thought um, and the way you guys kind of describe the story, you have no idea what the white tapes are, what they're really doing. Even in the final episode, you're clueless. You know, you don't yeah. know if it's aliens or demons or these Lovecraftian old gods or even if time travel is involved. Um, was that challenging to kind of, you know, you, you knew what was going on, but you kind of have to mask it and make it a little more vague? Well, yeah, I mean, the, the thing is that we, we kind of set up front, like, you know, I think about the original, um, you know, Richard Donner's The Omen, you know, the scene, the scene where the where the church steeple kind of falls down and impales uh, Gregory Peck. And I was like, we can't really have any scenes like that. <laughs> like the, the what's working against you if you're making something that's supposed to be documentary. And this I mean, you know, this bedevils every found footage movie like. I try and be very purist about this stuff um, and saying like every, every piece of audio has to have a source. And it's like tempting to have like, Oh, they're monsters standing right. You know, the eyeless man's right there and I can, you know, point my microphone. Hey, Hey, eyeless man, you know, uh, you know, what'd you have for breakfast? You know, like it's tempting, it's tempting, but it's also like, you don't usually get that convenience in a documentary form. So the only times that, uh, that we could really kind of, I mean, we could have 10 scenes where Mark gets his ass kicked or, you know, he gets chased out of somewhere or he sneaks into somewhere, but it was like really hard to like not 
you can't really show the monster the way you could, you can in a movie. And I mean, think think about Blair Witch. Um, you know, like y- you never see anything ever. Yeah. You never really get to see anything. And I think that that you know, to to a lot of people, that's extraordinarily frustrating because you know, like you know, that same year, Deep Blue Sea came out. We got to watch you know a shark bite Samuel L. Jackson in half. But um, you know, or or the the remake of The Haunting came out, and we got to see like very brightly lit you know Jan de Bont scenes of you know ghosts <laughs> and stuff. <laughs> And, and it's like, it's a different thing when you're like, okay, I'm just not going to show you the one thing you really want. And so, you know, the discussion about like the mythology of the, of, of video palace and the bigger mythology about where the white tapes come from and what they actually are is really only hinted at. And it, I, I don't, I don't know how spoilery you want me to get, but like in the, in the last episode, when a lot is revealed, shall we say? Um, the audio is dropping out a lot because Mark is like, he's just, he, he's on his phone. So, and it's uploading to a cloud thing. So he's getting crappy reception cause he's in a basement. Um, but we scripted out exactly what everyone says. Like, you know, there's a full script for what is, what is said down there and the actors, you know, set, set all of it. You just don't, you don't hear all of it. Probably the clearest indication you get as to like what's really going on is from a pol- the police tape interview with Thurman Mueller that turns up. And mm-hmm. and he yeah. talks about, you know, the eight doors in the stack. Yeah, that's sort of the entry point to the mythology that we created. And then Max George gets pissed off because I can't hear what's going on. So I end up listening to that section four or five times. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was fantastic. And, and Nathaniel, I want your opinion. What do you think is going on? Is it aliens? Is it demons? I'm, man, I don't know. Yeah, but I want to know. Because <laughs> oh, I man. think it's demons. I, think, I, I, I wish I could tell you. I know, I know. But we we can't know. I'm a, a, a fan just, of demons, so I'm going to run with say that. that. I just want to say there is an answer, and none of us are fans of, like, ambiguity for ambiguity's sake. Or, like, we we feel like you can have ambiguity in the final product, but as creators, if we have ambiguity, it's going to feel kind of mushy and insubstantial. And, uh, even though like we were furiously writing this to, to, to get it, you know, cause you know, we were, we were brought on, like I said, about a year ago. And, um, so that my, I have, my son was born on the 4th of May and we probably started late May or early June, Bob and I breaking it and writing it. And then we had to record it in July. And then the whole thing had to be completely finished and turned in in September. So wow. So it was a super fast process, and the mythology stuff wasn't in that original document. Bob and I had to kind of come up with that. But then, since like we we kind of we 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 knew what it was, and we made an, enough mythology to kind of get us through. And then when we started talking about possible season twos, we were able to like really go in and 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 expand the mythology a lot. So I'm I'm hoping we get to do that because uh, we've got some we have some some shit and i think people will like it well i can tell you in advance we will like it so (laughs) and and um, whatever we need to do to make sure there is a season two we will do it (laughs) one thing i'm I'm curious about is is yeah like where other than lovecraft which you've specifically mentioned uh have you you know kind of found uh inspiration for the story you know it definitely feels like a lot of kind of urban legends and stuff like that so you know kind of kind of where where did the things that that kind of made the story work for you 
come in? Um, we talked about a lot of different influences, and I would say that a lot of mine lie in things like David Cronenberg, Videodrome, and The Fly. There's 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 aspects when you get into the deeper mythology, especially that kind of combine mysticism and technology in like a Jack Parsons kind of a way. And then, you know, one of the things that I thought about a lot while we were kind of creating the narrative was the Wicker Man, because really the story is a lot like the Wicker Man in that, yeah, you have a character who believes he's uncovering things, but really he's being kind of frog-marched to a specific ending that people want him to have. We also talked a lot about Clive Barker. Uh, there's a Clive Barker novella called In the Flesh, where there's a line in there about there are basically like these two characters are in jail and there's like a dream world that they go to that's sort of a purgatory hell kind of place and the innocent not the innocent man but the man who who wasn't into all the demonology shit and it is told at one point as he goes to this place you know there are no visitors just prospective residents and i feel like you know th there's a sense in video palace that Mark Cambria is called to do what he does, even though he doesn't know it. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. And that's mentioned in the later episodes, too. Yeah. Yeah. He's kind of got a compulsion. Uh, hell, I mean, I feel like that myth is kind of hardwired into Clive Barker stuff, you know, like in, uh, you know, the Hellbound Heart, you know. Uh, sure. Yeah. Mm. It's like you don't pick up. Nobody accidentally picks up the, the you know, the Le, Le Manchard configuration, or the Lament configuration, as they call it in the movie. So, yeah, I mean, you know, to me, that's like, you know, there's a reason that this happens to Mark and not Tamara and not Kat, even though both of them listen to all the tapes. It, it really hits him. So, and then, uh, you know, beyond that, and actually, Shudder was, Owen Shiflet at Shudder was one of the people who recommended a documentary that I found on YouTube, and I think the filmmakers put it on YouTube. I don't think I'm advocating piracy of any kind called Adjust Your Tracking, and it's about kind of the underworld of uh, VHS collector culture. Huh. And um, and uh, I definitely watched that, and actually one of the people that we interview in episode one is uh, Eric Spudik, who I actually knew, uh, or I, I guess I know Eric, and uh, we brought him in because Eric is one of the people in the in the VHS subculture. He used to have a store right around the corner from my house that where he sold VHS videos. And now I think he does it all online. But uh, he has a great story in that that we touch on briefly in the episode where there's like a super rare VHS uh, movie called Tales from the Quadded Zone. Yeah. And, and, mm -hmm. he, and, it, and it's highly prized. And he found it in like a thrift store for 99 cents and sold it for like over 600 bucks. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. So moving aside from those types of inspirations, um, you have, you know, those these urban myths. The Eyeless Man to me was very much like Slender Man. Did that have any connection at all, or is that just kind of a? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, uh, Slender Man, and also the story that the little little girl that the teenage girl tells in the diner about about the Eyeless Man is sort of my modification of a story that people used to tell about Aleister Crowley. Oh and, yeah, yeah. And you know, there's definitely a connection to Crowley in. I, I wouldn't say definitely, definitely a connection, but in our mythology, let's just say it, it deals in Crowley-ish stuff. It's oh, not, it's, it's not, you know, it's not Thelema, but it's, it's, it, it's kind of playing in that world. Oh, totally. Now that you say that, my eyes are just like, oh my God. Yeah, that's, that's right. Wow. Crowley's one of my unsung heroes in my life, so. Yeah, he's an, a very interesting person. I, I, I find, like, he creeped the shit out of me when I was a kid. My grandmother had a book that had like all the weird 20th century people in it, like, you know, Rasputin and stuff. And Crowley was one of them. And I remember reading about it 
and it freaked me out. It wasn't until like I was probably a teenager in my twenties when I started reading Robert Anton Wilson yeah. and hi, and him kind of using Crowley as like a trickster character. And then I watched a documentary about Crowley, and I'm like, actually, I think Crowley is basically Charles Manson if no murder had been committed. Like, exactly. <laughs> like he. Yeah. He, he claimed to have supernatural powers and he did all this stuff and he made people do weird shit. And, uh, you know, I just don't think he killed anybody. I don't yep. think he killed anybody. He but, um, a religion. More yeah. people have done that before. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, you know, I don't know if you know the Jack Parsons story, but it's something that I've, I've always found fascinating that, you know, like the guy who created solid rocket fuel was obsessed with Aleister Crowley. And every time he launched a rocket, he would, he would, uh, he would recite Crowley's Hymn to Pan. I so. did not know that. That's awesome. Yeah, there's two books. They made a uh, CBS All Access made a show about it, and I didn't have it at the time, but I do now, so maybe I should watch it. But it's an adaptation about a book called Strange Angel, and I've read two books about Parsons. That one, and uh, there's another one called Sex and Rockets. And Parsons is his own uh, uh, crazy can of worms because he was, you know, into Crowley and also cutting edge science, uh, rocket science. And he died pretty young in a in a, an explosion in his garage. I'm gonna have hmm. to read into that. Yeah, yeah. Also, like you know, all weirdly uh, intertwined with L. Ron Hubbard. Like, I, I want to watch the, mo- the the TV version of Strange Angel because it's hard to tell the Parsons story without L. Ron Hubbard being the villain. And uh, and you know, I wonder how you get away with that in Hollywood. But you know, somebody did. I don't. I don't know. If, I, I had worked on a reboot of In Search of at one time, and uh, we were telling the Parsons story as, as part of an episode, and they wouldn't let us include anything about L. Ron Hubbard. And it was oh, like, but so all much. this, but L. Ron Hubbard was all this stuff. <laughs> L. Ron Hubbard is, yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, like, take away any, any actual things about L. Ron Hubbard. And I'm not even saying L. Ron Hubbard is a villain. I'm saying in the Jack Parsons story, L. Ron Hubbard was clearly the villain. So, aside from like modern mythos and urban legend, what podcasts kind of inspired you? I'm glad any? you asked. Actually, um, you know, the one that I was listening to while we were writing it was season two of In the Dark, which, if you haven't heard it, it's an amazing pod. It's it's a little bit like serial, but I was like paying very close attention to the uh, language of it, like the way that it mixed live stuff. You know, like there's a scene in season two where the narrator, um, narrator, where the host. And somebody else kind of go into an abandoned prison and, and find the office and find files in an office. And, you know, I was like, OK, well, that's how you kind of record that. Like, you know, like trying to figure out, like, how would it how would it sound? That was probably my number one um, inspiration while I was listening to it, but it, uh, while I was writing it rather. But, um, you know, honestly, like there are just so many great podcasts like we're you know, uh, everyone's always talking about how, you know, podcasting is just kind of getting started, but already there are so many like masterfully done brilliant podcasts. And one of the ones that we actually looked at was startup, the Gimlet podcast season one, uh, where, uh, it's not, it's not Alex Stoltman. I'm just blanking on his name, but the guy who founded Gimlet, um, um, Alex Bloomberg, uh, you know, he's trying to raise the money. Have you heard, uh, startup? I, I haven't listened to it yet, but he but I've heard them talk about it on uh, Reply All, which is when I definitely listen to it. So a lot. season one of Startup, I mean, like all the seasons of Startup are good. I think there's three now, but the first one is amazing because it's him uh, trying to figure out how to raise venture capital when he basically had been working in you know public radio his whole life and trying to switch sort of not 
not even switching his career, trying to do the same thing, but in the private sector for money and not knowing how to raise venture capital. And there are all these scenes where his wife is just tearing, like really tearing the shit out of him, like really not berating him, but like, you know, he, he kind of did a warts and all thing. And I was like, you know, Bob and I were kind of talking about that as, as a kind of a source of inspiration for us for the Mark Tamara stuff. Like we wanted it to be very, very raw and very, very real. And, and so, you know, it's hard to, uh, it's extremely hard to cast actors who can, who can do what, what our two actors did. And, uh, you know, also given like we had to do casting had to happen very quickly, but they were both, uh, Devin and, and Chase were, were like so game to just jump in and kind of do that scene work. And, and, you know, uh, in episode eight, when they kind of have their giant meltdown, that was one of the scenes we gave them for their audition. And it was really interesting because we had it narrowed down to basically four people. And it was, you know, when you get that close, you're like, well, any combination of these people probably would work, but it, it seemed pretty clear the right way to go. But we, we kind of patterned that after um, Startup Season 1. There was also an episode of Reply All, and I'm forgetting which one it exactly was, that we had referenced to them because it was it was one of the ones that was kind of about a mystery. But it's like, you know, how Reply All kind of bemusedly goes out of mystery. Like they're not even mm-hmm. one like even the one time the guy went to India to uh, to find the guy who had tried to hack his computer and, you know, and like confront him directly. Like, you know, or you're listening to like, ah, this guy's going to get his ass kicked. Yeah, I love. I love that episode. Uh, I, I couldn't put it. It was a two-parter. I couldn't put it down. I, I was so pissed off that I had to wait like two weeks for the conclusion. Same. Well, I think we've covered a lot of the angles that we were wanting to cover. Um, was there anything else that you wanted to share about Video Palace or any of your other projects that, that you've worked on? That Well, um, I, I will say that we do have a season two of 20 Seconds to Live coming out. So if people like the first season, then, you know, it'll be... Wherever it is, it'll be free. Yeah, so you know, 20 Seconds to Live is just kind of a personal hobby horse that Bob and I created a few years ago, and we love we love making them, and they're all really short, and some of them are super gross and super dark. I did kind of want to take a moment and talk about Shudder. I've mentioned this to a few people, and they had no idea that it actually existed. Do you want to maybe give us a quick little rundown about what Shudder is and does? Well, Shudder, yeah, Shudder's like Netflix, but they're all horror movies. Uh, and it's, I shouldn't say all horror. It's like horror, thriller, genre stuff. I feel like it's stuff that would appeal to horror fans. So you'll see a movie like Darren Aronofsky's Pie or uh, Tony Scott's True Romance on there. Neither one of those are horror movies, but I think horror fans like those movies. Um, mm-hmm. I've been a subscriber for uh, you know a few years now, and, and I, I love it. You know, And it's relatively inexpensive. It's like four bucks a month. Um, and I had been trying for over a year just to get a meeting at Shutter before this happened. So, you know, I was very, very excited to uh, work with them and kind of see the inner workings of the way it works. Because to me, um, I, I'm not trying to slag uh, Netflix or Amazon Prime or whatever, but like if you go on there, if you're into a specific genre, be it horror, sci-fi, whatever, if you look at the horror selection on Netflix, there's good, there's bad, there's indifferent. Like, you know, and, and they're all just kind of put out there with equal weight. And and uh, Amazon Prime is even worse in my opinion. There's just not a sense of curation. But but like, mm-hmm. uh, and he's in New York. But as I understand it, Sam Zimmerman is like very 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 hands on involved in the curation of what goes on to Shutter. And so you know, like, is every movie on there like the most classic awesomest movie ever? No. But I would say every movie that's on there is a movie that's got some kind of a fan base or you know has love from a fan base and 
and they're chosen really, really well. And I've seen, you know, like I know if I put on Shutter and I play a movie I've never heard of before, there's a much better chance that I'm going to like it than if, if I was to just go on Netflix and go into the horror tab and just hit play on the first thing I saw. And I've I've seen a lot of stuff that I'd never heard of on Shutter and been blown away. And then like even last night, um, I was watching uh, The Last Drive-In with Joe Bob Briggs. And um, and they had a movie that I've heard of my whole life and I've never seen it. Hello, Mary Lou, Prom Night 2. Never seen it. And uh, that movie's rip shit bonkers. I don't know that I would have watched it otherwise. And and it was great ha- having uh, Joe Bob on there because he breaks it up and kind of talks about the making of it and who made it. And like, you know, he has he has a lot of good information. But, you know, The Last Drive-In is kind of a limited thing. They have they have some original stuff. And they also have original movies on there like... Uh, I mean, like they're they're what I don't think they're making the movies. I think they're getting the rights to them. But like the Nicolas Cage movie, uh, Mandy, a fantastic one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that movie also is just banana pants crazy. Um, oh, Summer yeah. of '84, I thought was really good too, and that's a another kind of Shutter produced, I guess you could say. Yeah, I think that I think that what's happening is they release them. Like my friend uh, Graham Skipper made a film called Sequence Break that got picked up by Shutter. And it's an awesome kind of send up to Cronenberg kind of a thing. It's really cool. And it also stars Chase Williamson. Yeah, I mean, you know, I I, I don't know I, I don't know what arrangement they had, but you know, I, I it was presented as a shutter original and I know Graham made it independently. I mean, and it, at the end of the day, if you love horror movies, it's a great kind of app to use. It, it's fantastic. I've also been a subscriber for about three years and I almost check it weekly for new movies that are out and yeah it's fantastic I, totally like i'm always paying attention to the new stuff that comes on there and uh yeah i mean and i'm often just like blown away i mean like i again i hadn't seen uh the changeling i think the last time i saw the changeling was literally on vhs like i think i was in college then they put that up on shutter and i was like hell hell's yeah and i watched it you know like like i think like the day it was up and uh you know sometimes also i'll give movies another chance also like a lot of times you know, back in the video store days, there'd be a movie that like I would see the box, but something about it would, you know, would give me pause and I wouldn't rent it for whatever reason. And then, uh, you know, on, on Shutter, I'll be like, oh, Burial Ground. I wonder what that is. And then I'll watch it and be like, oh, cool. You know, like, you know, and some of them are great and some of them are terrible. I went I went through a, a binge around the time my son was born. Uh, I don't psych- psychoanalyze me about this, but I started watching like every italian horror movie that they had on there which is a lot and um, italian horror can get pretty intense yeah and it's all just super weird and dreamlike um yeah and it you know it was kind of fun and even like you know i'd I'd seen a lot of the dario argento movies but you know like i don't know they they always merit uh revisiting and uh also there were like some fulci ones like uh i'd never seen uh city of the living dead for instance and and having shutter like and it enabled me i mean i'm not saying i couldn't have seen it some other way but it, it, it just makes it too easy like there it is and uh you know a big i'm a big fan of the beyond and of course i you know i love that you know like, i love that whole vibe that he does and and people don't make movies like that anymore and when they try to make them like that they fail anyway like they're just not they're not authentic. What's cool about those movies is they just are authentically what they are. Yeah. I, I'm thinking with, with a, a new child there is probably just a lack of sleep. It felt like the dream light stuff anyway. So you just kind of relate oh, it. Yes. Yeah, so before my son was born, I was talking to an older friend who's a parent and I was like, what do you, what do you do about all this terror that I have, you know, about having, cause he's my only, he's my first kid. 
And he was like, oh, don't worry. The exhaustion will take care of the terror. And I was like, (laughs) (laughs) and he was completely right. I mean, like, yeah, only only within the last like month have I actually been getting like normal sleep again. Nathaniel has a two year old and I have a four year old. So we we feel for you. (laughs) Yeah, you guys are way ahead of me. Uh, Yeah, my son literally just turned one. Well, that's exciting. And and so I guess going back to Shudder. So and now they're getting into podcasts. So that's really cool, too. I, I love seeing more. Yeah. High quality genre podcasts coming out. Well, and I think that there's like uh, there's a lot of people trying to crack that nut. And, you know, the truth is, and we kind of talked about it. It's like the podcast format isn't like other formats. So it's not it, I mean, it has it bears similarities to old time radio or it bears similarities to TV or movies. But really, the way people listen to podcasts, like we don't usually like all gather around, uh, you know, a, a Sonos speaker and listen to a podcast as a group. We listen to podcasts by ourselves, like we're in the car or we're working out or we're walking our dog or we're doing some job that doesn't require our, our ears or something, you know, like we're, you know, we're, we're, we're usually alone when we're listening to them. And so they're kind of talking directly into our heads if you're listening to them on earbuds. And, and so it's a very weirdly intimate format. So a lot of people are trying to crack the code of like, how do you tell other stories? And I feel like you can't infinitely tell first person fake documentaries, basically, like this. And Bob and I are actually developing more of a, of a close third person style narrative. So not like third person omniscient, but like, you know, you're kind of with one person mostly, but it's a, th- it's a mm-hmm. third person story. Um, we're developing one uh, for someone else. So we'll see how that goes. But, um, uh, you know, for my money, the only narrative podcast that really cracked it well was Homecoming. um, In that I feel like they got the intimacy right and they figured out how to sort of tell a a cinematic narrative story using only audio. And, you know, part of it is they got like, you know, Catherine Keener and Oscar Isaac and you know, they got like, you know, amazing, you know, Dave Cross, they got great actors, but I've heard a lot of other strictly narrative podcasts and, uh, and it's probably just my personal taste, or maybe I'm just not, you know, inured to the style as much, but I I feel like nobody nailed it quite like homecoming in that regard. But I feel like we're going to start seeing more of them. Like I know Rami Malek is in one that recently launched and the exact same executives that we work for at Shudder, uh, did one for, um, Sundance now called Exeter. You know, there's there's a bunch of them out there, and I think that's only going to become more the case. And part of it's because you can create an audience. Like, if you can build an audience for for uh, an idea, uh, you know, to use an industry buzzword for an IP, if you can build an IP using this, it's a lot less expensive and a lot more creative, frankly, than uh, you know, making an episode of a TV show or whatever. Like the the cost of three hours of Video Palace is far less than than the least expensive TV pilot you could ever imagine. Um, and so, you know, you can actually cover a lot of ground. You can see if the idea really has legs. And, you know, like in the case of, of Homecoming, they, you know, they remade it, remade it for um, Amazon, you know, with Julia Roberts. Uh, why, why Catherine Keener wasn't good enough, I don't know. But it, it, it was just, it was cool to see something go from a podcast to a TV show. And I think it even won a few Emmys and stuff. So I, I feel like we're going to see more and more of that stuff. Because you can bring in a, a, like, you know, to me, having Chase Williamson, you know, was, was a giant big deal because I'm a, I'm a giant fan of his. But he really only had to give us, you know, five days. And that's because he's the lead. Larry Cedar, who plays Randy Wayne, 
who, you know, he was on Deadwood, he was in The Crazies, he was in Twilight Zone, the movie, for God's sakes. He's, you know, he, he's one of the workingest actors I know. And Larry was only there for under four hours to do all the Randy Wayne stuff. Oh, wow. And, and so you can get really good, if you can get really good actors, they get to come in and have fun. It's a fun process for them. They can wear their street clothes. They don't have to shave or put on makeup or do anything. They just get to come in and act. And, you know, for a lot of actors, that's kind of a dream. Yeah, and and I mean, it pays off. Uh, so when I listened to Video Palace, I was doing night security at a hotel. Uh-huh. So I was wandering long hallways alone listening <laughs> to it, which was not the best decision at three in the morning. But, you know, it definitely got under my skin. And it was just such a, yeah, like, like you said, it was a, such an intimate experience while I was doing something otherwise mundane it made it very uh creepy but they i mean they're all like that like s-town i remember listening to s-town and i was going i was working on a project that was really stressing me out and at a certain point i had to stop because s-town got way too into my head and uh you know it was just such a dark 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 story and it's real you know and i just never Mm -hmm. knew where the hell what what other turns that crazy ass story was going to take and to me like you can do that in a novel uh, it's harder to do that. It's harder to do that in a movie, like in um, in In the Dark. Not to keep going back to In the Dark, there was an episode where they they found somebody's name on a post-it note on a box in a police, um, like it, it was a, an evidence box, and they were trying to figure out who this guy was. And they spent like twenty, thirty minutes of that episode chronicling them, literally crisscrossing the country, going to like three or four different cities and tracking down every time who they thought was the guy, and it turned out not to be the guy each time. And I'm like, you, you couldn't really do that. In a movie, you could have a montage where you covered that in like two minutes. But a podcast can like show you the process behind it. You know, it's kind of, uh, what do they call it? Structuralist in that way, where like you can, you're allowed to kind of know where everything comes from. I mean, that was like why we had the person who composed the music for the podcast be a character in the podcast. You know, it's like, well, this shit has to come from somewhere. And, and if we establish this guy hasn't made a podcast before, how would he know to do any of this stuff? So... You know, we had to kind of create our own cast of experts. And then, you know, I mean, I guess we probably could have not had Cat be a character in that way. But then we were like, oh, there's a lot of there's a great narrative application of this character to have her like she understands audio and she understands all this stuff about about the tritone. Maybe she can help them figure shit out. And, you know, it became its own uh, its own arc. You know, I mean, that, that kind of stuff gets fun. And it humanizes the other characters in the podcast. You know, these are real people, real stories, you know, and the events that happened to Kat and to uh, Tara and Mike, it, it, those can actually happen. And it, like we kind of have been talking about this entire episode is you guys really were able to create an authenticity in the voice acting and also in the story that really created these deep, unsettling fears. Uh, similar to Nathaniel, I was driving home listening to it once and we were you guys were talking about the eyeless man and I had to sage my house when I got home because I was so <laughs> creeped out about it. Like the authenticity and the visceral kind of feel to video palace is so well done and is a huge testament to not only your work and your art, uh, but also the horror behind this amazing podcast. Oh, thank you so much. It's, it's, I'm, I'm, nothing makes me happier than knowing that people enjoyed it. You know, I mean, we, we put a lot of work into it in the hopes that it ends up being something people like. And and you do in this business, you work on a lot of things that you have that hope for and, you know, they don't they don't find their audience. And so it's, it's great that it found an audience. Well, 
well, we will continue to try to spread the word because, yeah, like like I mentioned earlier, yeah, everyone who listens to us is is bound to be a the the right audience for for Video Palace. So, well, um, did did you have anything else, uh, Max? Um, I didn't. Ben, did you want to take a minute and maybe blurb all your social media outlets if you want to do? Oh, any... sure. Yeah, where where can people find you? Some shameless uh, yeah, plugging. You can... <laughs> Absolutely. Well, uh, I have a website and it's Benrock Online because Benrock.com was owned by a boating company uh, and it's currently unoccupied, but uh, they won't let me have it. Anyway, so I'm BenrockOnline.com. Um, there you'll find all my connections, but I'm on uh, I'm on Facebook. I'm I'm on Twitter at Neptune Salad. Long story. Uh, and then I, when I signed up for Instagram, I didn't realize Instagram was going to be around for any amount of time. So I signed up as Benjamin underscore rock, uh, crappiest name I could have had, but there you go. <laughs> um, but I'm on Instagram. You can see lots of pictures of my baby. Um, uh, yeah, I'm too old for Snapchat. Don't, don't get it. Don't understand it. Apparently, uh, that's a thing that people like and I don't get it, but, um, we're, I don't get it either. And I'm younger than you. Yeah, so whatever. Yeah, I, right there with you too. I have it on my phone and use it maybe three times a year. So I, I did fire it up last week when they had kind of the gender switching filter. Cause I just wanted to see what yeah, I would look like. I'm like, Hey, I, I kind of look like my sister. What do you know? It, it did a, a, a remarkable job of making my beard disappear. I was like, wow, it's pretty crazy. Um, but yeah, you know, also Facebook, I'm trying to think, yeah, LinkedIn, all the LinkedIn fans hit me up on LinkedIn. <laughs> all right. I think that is a wrap. Stay spooky. Stay spooky. Need even more Scream Kings? Here's our obligatory shameless social media plug. Follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Scream Kings Pod. You could also email us at screenkingspodcast at gmail.com. Help us reach a wider audience of horror fans by leaving a review on iTunes or by sharing a link on social media. You can also support the show by going to patreon.com forward slash screenkings. Stay spooky.